Today, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 16. Could I please ask you to stand one more time out of respect for the reading of God's Word? The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. So would you please listen intently together as we read God's perfect and inerrant Word. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of it, for the vision of your kingdom that it gives us. We also thank you for the way it slices our heart into little tiny pieces like a sharp two-edged sword and lays out our sin before us. It's not pleasant, Lord, but we want to see so that we might grow in you, Lord. So we pray that you would convict us, but more so we pray that you would give us a vision of the beauty of Jesus so that our love for him would expel sin from our members as we seek to love him, as we seek to grow into your kingdom, Lord. So we pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word, as your spirit beautifies your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The, uh, the vision of Res Press, we have several statements. We're going to try and um, summarize that this year maybe a little bit. But the vision statement of Res Press is this. It's, it's unity and diversity 
through the lordship of Christ. And that, what that we mean by that is that we know, we believe that, that we're all, we have, we're in diversity. There are many diverse peoples here. We hope and we want to build a church that is diverse in ethnicity and culture, um, that we grow uh, in Christ and in our understanding of Christ so that we are able to grow up and above and rise above the intentionally conflicting secular narratives that are seeking to win the pole positions in your hearts. We hope to build a church that is able to rise above those things uh, and, and, and totally buy in to the narrative of the kingdom of God and to grow up into the culture of the kingdom of God as our primary focus, as our primary belief. And our, our cross actually, our, our, our logo actually uh, pictures that. It's a bunch of different diverse pieces that all come together in unity to form a picture of the lordship of Christ. That's what that all means. Unity in diversity in the lordship of Christ. It's more than just race, more than just ethnicity, although that's a big part of it. It's also about how God has made us his people and the gifts that he's given us to work together towards that end, to bring the culture of the kingdom of God to earth so that then we can then take that vantage point, that blessing, that love, and then influence the world, the institutions of the world, the ideologies of the world for Jesus and to bring righteousness and peace and justice and salvation primarily to the world. That's our goal. That's how we express it in, uh, in our vision, in our motto. And that's exactly really the main idea what Paul is talking about right here. He is talking about the same thing. So the big idea, the thesis of this passage is this, that because we have been given unity in our diversity through the lordship of Christ, we should use our diverse gifts together to grow the church into Christ. That's the big idea of this passage. So we will work through that one little part at a time. The first part, that we have been given unity in diversity. Look at verse one. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. If I, ask, if I got a room together of missiologists, church planners, church growth experts, and I were to ask, what is the most important thing for the success of the mission of the church? I would probably get a lot of answers. You, you know that. You can look at the Amazon bestseller list on church planning, and some people might say it's strategy. Some people might say it's planning. Some people might say it's small group. Some people might say it's money. Some people might say it's properly training missionaries. Some people would say it is a properly educated ministry that's most important. And, and, and all those things are important. But Paul, this is, listen to, this is what Paul is telling us right here. By listing all of those things first, what he's saying to us is that the most important thing for the success of the mission of the church is unity, our unity, a unity that is created by our love for one another. And when I say love, I'm not talking about, I love that little puppy dog in the window, love. I'm not talking about romance novel love. I'm not talking about big dollar advertising campaign, buy your heart to make 
money from you, love. I'm talking about the biblical, raw, difficult, (laughs) suffering, long-suffering idea of love. This This is one of those places, one of many of the places in the Bible where it just brings us face to face with what Jesus really meant when he said, love one another as I have loved you, which right there should be a clue for us <laughs> that love in a biblical sense has more to do with the emotional high of how you make me feel and what I can get from you because of that. Uh, listen to how Paul characterizes love. And this is going to be painful. <laughs> I hope First, he says, humility. Uh, humility. <laughs> now you can reach a point in a, in a culture, culturally, where you just kind of lose the, even the ability to understand what words mean, or the gist of words, when you become so unhumble as a culture that it's hard to grasp the underlying foundations of what words mean. This means low-mindedness was a definition given by one commentator meaning lowliness of heart, what Jesus says about himself uh, in Matthew 11. It means, as Philippians 2 says, it means having a humble state of heart so much so that you are willing to recognize the needs of others is more important than your own. Uh, And to be willing and, 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 and ready to give up your own rights, to give up your own comfort, even give up your own security to those, uh, to others. And that's, that's capital O, others. That's just not friend and family, others. That's enemy, others. That's exile, others. That's uh, complete anyone in need of help. Um, contrast that with a high-mindedness, an idea that my rights are most important, that my security, that my comfort, that my blessing is most important, and then I fight for those things at the expense of other people. Gentleness, also translated elsewhere as meekness. I like the idea of meekness, explaining it as, um, as the refusal to use your power for coercion or your own power for gain, but instead using your own power for the blessing of others and for love, which is what Jesus did. Jesus was all-powerful. He could have shut down the crucifixion at any time, and yet he went through it in meekness, not because he was lacking in power, but because he was full of meekness and love and wanted to use his power to suffer and die on our behalf and win our salvation for us. That is a meek use of power. Contrast that with a use of power to coerce, a use of power to threaten, or use of power to get your way. Patience is one of my favorite words in the Bible. It's the word makrothumia. It's a beautiful word. One commentator said this is a good definition is long-tempered. <laughs> we all know what short-tempered means, right? <laughs> so you know what it means automatically to be long-tempered. It means that you don't blow up. You don't get angry at people, right? You don't fly off the handle. It is a, the, 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 the dictionary definition of the word is, is a state of emotional calm and compassion in the face of provocation while under attack. That is what they're talking about when they say patience. Contrast that with um, 
short-tempered. <laughs> Wanting, as soon as someone hurts you, seek revenge. The uh, bearing up with one another is, is, a, is, a, is another word. It's a, it's a positive sense of patience that's described in Ephesians 4.32, which says to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Versus, on the other hand, the antithesis of that would be resentment or expressing anger or punishing emotionally and withholding intimacy to show the other person how much they've hurt you so that they will repent. Uh, some of these the antithesis definitions, I have even better definitions than the positive ones. Why is that? Because I'm reading through this list and... Um, Man, sometimes I feel like being a pastor is like being on a reality TV show, and it's my job to like share with you like the, the, the awfulness of my own heart and the struggles that I have in relationships. Um, and, 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 and the reason why I'm so able to describe the antithesis of these attributes of love is because as I'm studying them this week, and as I'm thinking about my relationships, especially uh, some specific, very trying relationships that I've had this week, I see that I'm not very much like the first column. And I'm very much more like the second column. Um, when I'm challenged, when people hurt me, when people do things that I feel like are betrayal, when people do things that hurt my feelings, I don't tend to be low-minded. I tend to be high-minded and I tend to think about um, my rights over and above other people's comfort. And I don't tend to be meek. I tend to want to use my power to coerce and to threaten and to get my way. And I'm not patient. I'm not long-tempered. I tend to be short-tempered and to get angry and let everybody know it right away. And uh, I am not always kind, tender-hearted, forgiving, and I often forget how much God in Christ has forgiven me. <sighs> you know, and I'm, I'm going to guess I'm not totally alone here in this room in this. I mean, when we look, I mean, it's one thing to say, I love Jesus, I love you, and to be thinking about, I love the puppy dog in the window. I love how you make me feel. I love the emotional high I get. Or I, it's another thing to look in the face of this biblical definition of love and ask that super hard question. Is that how I am? Is that how I act? <sighs> There's one more word on top of this that he piles on. Is, is eager to maintain. Is really a word from athletic training which means to do with intense effort and motivation. It's like, it's like if you were training for an Olympic event, the kind of training that you would put into the sport of sacrificial love. <laughs> That's what we're supposed to do. That's the mature definition of love. So you know, we'd like to think, am I a mature believer? That's the picture That was a little more than convicting this week. You know what that tells us is 
I think we can all, it's dead silent in here right now, so I think we're all relating. <laughs> it tells us that this is a fantastically hard thing to do. When we're really face to face with what love means, the kind of sacrifice it requires, the kind of suffering that it produces, that it calls us to suffer by fighting against the inclinations of our heart in a protracted battle, it tells us just how hard this is. In fact, it shows us that in our own power, this is impossible. It can't be done in our own power. So how? How are we going to do this? And here's why it's so important. The best quote I read this week was this. The absence of love always leads to the loss of unity. If our unity is the most important thing for the successful mission of the church, and our lack of love always causes a lack of unity, that means we have to figure out how to love one another and and, and it's impossible to do it in our own power. How are we going to do it? And the answer is point two. The answer is through the lordship of Christ. Look at Ephesians 4 through 6. 4, 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and in all and through all. Paul's not just taking a break here to blast off with the doxology or a little bit of theology for us. He's saying something. He is expressing a reality to us. He is saying that through, that we have been, that our calling into Jesus and our baptism into him We talked about that last week in its fullest sense, meaning that we have been baptized into union with Christ by the power of the Spirit so that we are now in union with Jesus. We we share the Holy Spirit through Him and have been brought into the divine life of the triune God. That that is a real power that is going on right now. That God is over all, but He's also through all and in all of His people. We have been given unity through the Spirit. We have been given it. That is reality. It is true for us. And so here's the big take. This, this is the biggest takeaway for me this week in, this, in meditating on this. I all, all the time I like to say, in seminary, one of the biggest things, one of the, one of the biggest big ideas that blew my mind was the idea that those who are in union with Christ, who we've been given the, the Spirit, the Spirit is indwelling us, it means that we have been put in touch with the powers of the age to come. And I love that. I love power. I just love the way that sounds. We've been put in, I mean, if you think about the age to come and what kind of power that must be, and I'm like, you know, to be put in touch with the powers of the age to come, it sounds like superpowers. Like super people. I mean, it, I mean, you know, obviously none of us are like superheroes, but maybe we have a little bit of that power to operate in daily life, and it's a, it's a beautiful idea. But this idea of being given this unity, being given this power of love by our union with Christ in the Spirit kind of explains what that means. What is the power of the age to come? Another commentator said this, He said, love is the power 
of the age to come, and it is supplied by the spirit of that age. Listen, this is what that means. In the Bible, the idea of world to come and the idea of age to come are kind of fuzzy. They mix together because in the Bible, world and age, uh, they kind of, they overlap. Right now, Jesus, in his ascension, has entered into the age to come and he is now there presently. He is in the world to come, in the next age, even though we here are in this age still, surrounded by sin and death and misery. But Jesus, in the power of, of the age to come, by our union with the Spirit, he is sending us, we are connected to that biblical definition of love that gives us the power to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient to the point of love and, and compassionate to our enemies and those who would even seek to hurt us, to, be, to strive after that with motivation. And that kind of love exercised in the midst of this dark world is power. That is more powerful than any other power on earth. And we have it by our union with Jesus in the Spirit. Amen? But a better question, a bigger question is how do we get our union with Christ? And the simple answer, one we love to say, is because what? Because Jesus loves you. And again, here we miss the whole, we miss the thrust of what that means when we think about love as an emotional high that I get from you or the shallow definition of our cultural understanding of love doesn't, doesn't, under, doesn't taking that biblical frame, that biblical understanding of the attributes of love as humility, as meekness, as patience, as gentleness, as, uh, as striving after all those things, as being kind, tenderhearted, forgiving, taking that definition of love and plugging it into the statement, Jesus loves you, makes it a whole different statement, doesn't it? It doesn't mean Jesus loves you as in Jesus is fond of you like your Uncle Bob is fond of you. It means that Jesus has willingly suffered for you. Whenever you run across a definition of love in the Bible, you can plug it right into the character of Jesus and it fits perfect. 1 Corinthians 13, you can do that. You can do the same thing here, Jesus was lowly in heart. Like he says in Matthew 11, Jesus is meek. Jesus didn't use his power to coerce, but he used his power for the blessing of others, for us, his people. He was long-tempered. He did not seek revenge. It means, as Philippians says, that even though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is why the cross is a definition of love. Real love. Real, raw, biblical, sacrificial, suffering love. 
And so what does that do for us? That means that that's our definition of love. It means that we are called, when we call, the Bible calls us to love, it means it's calling us to suffer. You will suffer if you love someone. You will have to suffer harm that they do to you and take it and repay them with love and repay with blessing. It will be costly, but it's always the way love is. That's the way Jesus loved us, and because he has loved us that way, and because he has given us the power of his spirit and put us in touch with the power of the age to come, we are not only called to love in that way, but we're obligated to strive after it like an Olympic sporting event. Amen? We are called to do the same. So first, we've been given unity and diversity to through the lordship of Jesus Christ. Third point, therefore we should use our diverse gifts to grow up the church into Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter seven. Uh, And then I'm gonna go on. Uh, Look at Ephesians chapter four, sorry, verse seven. But grace was given to each one of us according to, to the measure of Christ's gift. There's all kinds of scholarly debate over this section of the passage, um, and it all has to do with where we should put the comma in a certain, in a, in a certain verse. And the verse is this. <clears throat> Let me read the first one, and I'll go on to read this one. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the, te- the, the, pa- the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And the big controversy is, where do we put the comma? Do we put the comma after to equip the saints so that it says, and he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, comma, to equip the saints, comma, for the work of ministry, comma, for the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, are all those clauses about the, the, the teaching ministry? Are all those clauses just about what the pastors and teachers and shepherds do? Or do we take that comma out and does it say, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, comma, for the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, it's the job of the pastors and the teachers to equip you so that you go out and do the ministry or is that a description of what the pastors do? The pastors do the work of ministry. At the end of the day, any way you slice it, this text says, well, the big idea of this passage is that everyone has been given a certain gift for the work of ministry. That word, the word ministry is a, is a word that's used in all kinds of different ways throughout the New Testament. It's used for Paul's ministry to the Gentile, the apostolic ministry of evangelism. It's used for the ministry of the deacons in serving food to people in Jerusalem. Uh, it's used for the ministry of the relief of the saints, meaning the giving of money to relieve, relieve the poor. There's all kinds of ways that word is being used. Ministry is a broad Concept, and although it's probably true, and I think it is true that there's a, there are specific giftings that God God has given the church 
talented people, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, uh, for the equipping of the saints, there's also a very definite sense that everybody, to each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then towards the end, in verse 16, it says, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is it equipped, when each part is working properly, each part, every one of us, working together properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so he does. He highlights the teaching gifts. We know that the apostles, other, in, in, earlier in the book of Ephesians, Paul says that the apostles and the prophets were for the foundation of the church. They laid down proper doctrine. If you look at Timothy's le- or Paul's letters to Timothy, he is saying our apostolic doctrine, our revelation, and then when it gets to Timothy, the next generation, he says you maintain. Every, you don't add to it. You don't create anything new. You maintain. You teach what was given to you. And so after the first generation, there's a definite shift. Apostles, prophets, and then pastors and teachers carry the weight from then on. And so there's a certain sense that the, these teaching gifts are highlighted because uh, they play a significant role in bringing about the unity of faith. We have the unity of the spirit, how we love each other, but then there's also the unity of the faith. What we believe about the world, what we believe about God, the, our unity of faith, the unity and belief in the truth is the, one of the greatest unifiers we have. If we're all on the same page about who God is, who Jesus is, what our problem is, what our solution is, the main things of the faith, we will be unified in our belief, in our understanding of the world, and better able to then act in it. So there's a certain sense where he highlights these special gifts. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and says, everyone gets a gift to use in the service of the body. Other words, other places in the New Testament, Paul expands on it. In Romans chapter 12, Corinthians chapters, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, 14, gifts of administration, gifts of service, gifts of mercy, gifts of help, gifts of wisdom, gifts of knowledge. And these aren't exhaustive lists. Some people try to you know, go through all the books and compile all the lists together and say, here we have a comprehensive list. Uh, let's put together a spiritual gift test and then you can take it and find out where you fit in. I don't think that's the point. They're not exhaustive gifts. It's Paul trying to say, look, everyone in the church has been gifted in a certain way by Jesus to work within the body together to bring about the mission of the church, to create a healthy organism that grows up in maturity so that we can then go out, bring in, and grow up new believers in Jesus. And notice, I mean, the focus on this whole passage. Wherever it says maturity, wherever it says grow up, wherever it says growth, it's always talking about our spiritual growth, our spiritual maturity, and it's never, ever talking about growing in numbers only. That's because a healthy church that is growing up in the Spirit that is growing into maturity, that is growing in the unity of the Spirit, that is growing in the unity of faith, will then begin to work in the unity of, of, its, of its purpose and growth will happen naturally. 
But if you focus on growth in numbers by itself, you will grow a very big and a very sick church. And so we focus on us. We focus on us. How are we growing in the Lord? So, here's the big takeaway from that. To be joyful, uh, the, the best place in the world to be is in the center of God's will for you. Meaning, find out, what has God gifted you to do? And then, do it. You know, I, don't, I, I think spiritual gift tests can be misleading. When I ever took them, I always tried to manipulate them into what I wanted to be. I want to be an apostle. <laughs> so I'd look at each question and I'd say, how can I answer this question to best guarantee the outcome is going to be apostle? Yes, I like to go out in other countries and suffer. Check. Four. Um, I can be helpful, but in, you know, in my experience, a better thing is just to pray, God, what do you have me, what will you have me to do? What is the desire of my heart? And then start doing it and see if the church affirms it. Do your pastors, do the people who are gifted in those areas, do they say, yeah, you got it? And if not, try something else. But the, in, the most miserable place to be is f- trying to force yourself into some niche that's not you. And the better place to be, the most the joyful place, is to find out what your gifting is and in humility, plant yourself there and pitch in and start working and serving the church and watch it grow while we all work together in that effort. And soon enough, we will. So, in conclusion, concluding, what does this all mean? For us, it means that there are no passengers in Christianity. It means that everyone is on deck, especially at a church plant. We are a church plant. We need uh, to grow ourselves to spiritual maturity. We need to grow our church overall up into Christ so that we can bear fruit, that we can produce within our members mature believers who are then able to go out, bring in, grow up new believers in Jesus. Uh, And so this tells us that everybody's on deck. It's also super helpful um, you know, what we see here, look, we see three things. We see three forms of unity here. <laughs> different. These are different three forms of unity. We see a unity of the spirit, which is being to, uh, could be expressed by being together in worship and also being together in a smaller community of believers. We see a unity of the faith, be, being transformed by the word into the knowledge of God and into the culture of the kingdom of God that could be expressed by faithfully attending service and faithfully being under the preaching of the word and also going through a catechism, uh, understanding the basics of the faith, which in, throughout the history of the church has been the Nicene Creed, understanding what that means, understanding the Lord's Prayer, what do the petitions of the Lord's Prayer mean? We prayed the petitions of the Lord's Prayer earlier today. We're going to say the Nicene Creed here in a minute. And also the Ten Commandments. What are those, what do they mean? What do the Ten Commandments mean and how, how do I seek to live those out as a way of gratitude, as a way of service and worship to God for the salvation that I've already received? Do I understand those things? And then we see also a unity of service. Each person using his or her special gift to serve the church and serve the world. 
And so if you ever wonder and ask yourself, am I a disciple? Am I growing in maturity in the faith? You can ask yourself those simple questions. Am I in the unity of the Spirit? Am I a member of a local church? Do I worship regularly? Regularly means every week, millennials. Do I, uh, am I engaged in a real community, a real biblical community with a smaller group of believers? Am I in the unity of the faith? Have I been catechized into the basics? Do I understand what those things mean? Can I give a basic explanation of the gospel to unbelievers or to anyone who asks? And am I in the unity of service? Am I using my gifts to serve the church and to serve the world? And it helps us as a church to determine how are we doing as a church. We're called, if we're called to make disciples, we need to know if we're doing that. So we can ask, how many people come to worship service? How many people are in small groups? How many people are serving the church and serving the world? And we can quantify, not perfectly. There's always exceptions to rules and whatnot, but we can see how we're doing. Are we making disciples? Are we not? Where can we get better? How can we grow? So, our focus this year as a church is going to be on creating and implementing a pathway of discipleship where we simplify and we focus on the basics and we all move towards that goal of becoming disciples who are able to grow up ourselves in the reality and the knowledge of Jesus and the unity of the spirit, the unity of the faith, the unity of service, and then go out into the world, bring back and grow up new believers. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your goodness to us. We thank you for the goodness of your word. Lord, it's very easy for us to get uh, confused about what we're supposed to be doing here. It's also very easy for us to buy into the narratives of the world and to make them primary in our minds over and above uh, the culture of the kingdom of God and the knowledge of the kingdom of God. We know that you have called us not to, be, to leave the world, but to be in the world, but not of it, Lord. And so we pray that you would help us to, uh, to grow up into you, into the knowledge of you, so that we wouldn't be like children, tossed around with every new ideology. We would know what is according to your word and what's not so that we might be able to operate in the world and and that we might be ambassadors that we could have friendships with and find commonalities with all people, no matter what their persuasion of belief, so that we might present the gospel to them, Lord. We pray that you would, this year at ResPres, grow us up in all of those areas, Lord, so that we might better serve you and so that we might better serve the world. Help us to know what we're doing here and help us to better do it. Help us to be simple. Help us to be effective. Help us to glorify your most holy name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.